0: You'll hear argument next in case 16534, Rubin versus the Islamic Republic of Iran. Mr. Perlin? Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. In 2008, Congress comprehensively overhauled the terrorism exception to foreign sovereign immunity to close gaps that had for years allowed foreign terrorist states to thumb their noses at U.S. judgments finding them liable for acts of terrorism, while their victims were drawn into a long, bitter, and often futile search for scarce assets that would be subject to execution under the exceedingly narrow commercial exception of foreign sovereign immunity. A centerpiece of that legislation is Section 1610 G. That provision provides that American terrorism victims can execute their judgments upon the property of a foreign state that is subject that, um, against which a, a judgment has been entered under 1605A, and it makes available the property of the state's agencies and instrumentalities.
1: If, if well, as provided in this section,
0: as provided in this section, the question is what that what that provision means. The respondents would have the court delete the three words between the word execution and the words as provided in this section. What it actually says is that, that the property is subject to execution upon that judgment as provided in this section.
2: We know what, that, that Congress wanted to do away with the, what they call the bank check factors, and this statute was written perfectly to do just that. You say it does something more.
0: It has to do more, Your Honor. I mean,
2: why does it have to? What the the statute did is it made more assets available because you didn't have to worry whether it was the state itself, an instrumentality of the state, an agency. the, The property of any of those entities was available. So it swelled the assets that would be available. But it didn't say anything, not a word, about immunity.
0: Well, there's two questions here. It doesn't say anything about immunity, but those are magic words. It does say that the property is subject to execution.
3: Magic words under A and B. I'm in
0: sorry? 1610,
3: and A and B, Congress knew how directly to say property is not or is subject immune from attachment. But it used something very different here. Rather, it says that property is "quote subject to attachment as provided in this section." Those are two very distinct formulations.
0: They are different. Subsections A and B were part of the original Foreign Sovereign Immunity Act from 1976. There were other amendments since then. If you look at subsection F, one, which the President has waived, says, shall be subject to execution. The the Terrorism Risk Insurance Act, which is codified as a note to to section 1610, also says, shall be subject to execution, to, to, to execution, oh, right. So the language, when, when Congress sat down to write subsection G, it was looking at the other terrorism exceptions to execution immunity that it had already passed, and those were F and TRIA, and it modeled G after after those
1: sections. Hey, can they uh, execute uh, your clients on the embassy? So uh, — On the uh, uniform, uh, on the uniforms that the uh, — uh, people in the embassy wear on on the papers that the ambassador keeps in his desk. If, in fact, you read as provided in this section, the answer is no. If you read it to include, because it has to be commercial, all right. Under your reading, where those re- words must mean something else, uh, can't they do it?
0: They cannot. Uh, Why not? Subsection section 1609 says that. Section 1610, execution under 1610, is subject to international agreements, like the Vienna Convention, which would protect uh, diplomatic property. And Section 1611 protects military assets, certain central bank uh, assets. Congress, when they enacted 1610G, they did not completely abrogate foreign sovereign immunity for terrorist states. They wanted to provide a remedy for the victims. They wanted to punish and deter the terrorist states. But at the same time, Congress recognized that Iran and North Korea, Syria, Sudan, these are sovereign states, and they're entitled to a bare minimum of sovereign immunity. And Congress retained that bare minimum by protecting quintessentially sovereign assets while making everything else subject to execution.
1: What does uh — as provided in this section, mean, um, am I right? You think it, uh, it incorporates only procedural requirements? Um,
0: no, there are a number of a num- no, Your Honor. A what number it, of. Well, what does it mean? It means as per, the way to read it is, it refers to the judgment that's entered under sixteen oh five a. As provided in this section, it says execution. <laughs> you can have execution upon the property upon that judgment as provided in this section. As provided in section modifies the judgment, upon that judgment, and it, and it refers to the section, is Section 1605A, which is the only section mentioned in this sentence. It's referring back to the Section 1605A that was a couple lines above in the same sentence. And what it says is that a judgment that six, Section 1610G, which provides sweeping remedies for terrorism victims, is only applicable to those who hold judgments entered under the statutory cause of action of 1605A. It is not available to other plaintiffs holding terrorism judgments. It also extends — it also extends, as provided in, the, in this section, extends the remedies. The remedies — remember, the remedies of 1605A, capital A, are very uh, novel, to say the least. You, you, you don't have a private right of action anywhere else in the Sovere- Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act — you don't have any other provision that allows punitive damages against a sovereign state, which is a sure sign that Congress was not concerned about affronting the dignity of terror states. They allowed punitive damages. They, they expected those to be enforced. They allowed a pre-judgment lien of list pendants to attach to all sovereign — all of the state's property um, that is subject to execution under 1610 that — Including property of any party that the plaintiff identifies as being controlled
1: by by that terror state.
4: So it, it, apply,
1: it, as provided in this section is really superfluous, isn't it? Under your interpretation. It's
0: not. It refers well, it's it emphasizes the centrality of the sixteen oh five judgment to this provision. And it also there's there's no other way to read it. If you read it as as the respondents would, there's no there's no provision within sixteen ten that can pair with sixteen ten. They say that it must pair with another substantive provision of sixteen ten, but nothing works. Try to try to go through. It says that sixteen ten G says that the property of a foreign state is subject to execution and the property of an agency or some mentality. Now, if this were only a veil-piercing mechanism, as the respondents claim, there's no reason to mention the property of the foreign state. You don't need to pierce the veil to reach the property of the, of the judgment debtor, terror state. You just go straight for the, that property. And if you have a judgment against the agency or instrumentality
3: … I'm sorry. I thought that the University of Chicago had raised an interesting argument, that the definition of foreign state in the statute includes, by definition, an agency or instrumentality of a foreign state so that the reference to foreign state that you're relying upon does include the concept of piercing the corporate veil in its very definition?
0: Well, that would — that would that itself would abrogate BANSEC, the rationale that university — Well,
3: prov- that not quite, because what — I mean, this provision — deals directly in aid of the plaintiffs in the Bancic case and in the others that had found against plaintiffs. There are at least three cases where a class of plaintiffs were found not to be in a sufficiently tied relationship to the foreign state, and the plaintiffs there couldn't recover. So there was a real issue this was addressing, the fact that there were — subsidiaries and agencies of foreign state who had commercial property and it wasn't being made available to plaintiffs
0: so the question would be to ask the respondents why they don't mention those cases in their briefs we've maintained consistently that the property of the foreign state those words are completely not just superfluous but misleading if they're if this is just a veil piercing mechanism if it's a veil piercing mechanism
3: it gave them what those three cases denied them it gives which, other plaintiffs with similar claims a lot, access to a lot of, of property that they wouldn't have had under Bankset.
0: The provisions that allow execution upon the property of an agency or instrumentality gives access to, to the, the agency or instrumentality's property.
1: Well, give an example. I mean, there's a famous example which you uh, know about, the, the letter of Cyrus, saying to everybody throughout the Middle East that the Jews are free mm-hmm. and they can go back to Israel, uh, Palestine, the temple. And that letter exists. And uh, Persia, Persian letter, and Iran has sent it around the world. Now, in your view, they have and people have looked at it. And if it comes to the United States, you can seize it. Is that that's your view of it? Because if it is, of course, if Congress knew about it, then they, they might have had a general idea, given the nature of this stuff in Chicago. Uh, I, I would be surprised that they'd want to do that.
0: We, you might be surprised, but Congress has Your addressed — Your view is,
1: yes, you could seize it.
0: It would depend on uh, — yes, you could. It, it, Congress has addressed this, this very question twice. They In um, 22 U.S.C. 2459, Congress provided a very specific and limited immunity — for culturally significant objects being brought to the United States, culturally significant objects being brought to the United States for display or exhibition, there is a very specific um, immunity there. That that the that somebody wants to bring in that that property, those uh, exhibits, can apply to the State Department in advance and receive a letter immunizing th- those assets from from judicial process and. And that, last it, year, did Cong- that exist in what was it, 1939? It did not. It when did not. got this, but Congress could have made that provision retroactive, and it didn't. But what it about Congress- the
2: provision that Congress did enact? In we've been talking about uh, G, and so so this is subsection three refers to uh, nothing shall be construed to supersede the-, c- c- the authority of a court to prevent. impairment of an interest held by a person who is not liable in the action. Um, Why isn't the University of Chicago such a person? They're certainly not liable in the action. And they got this property when Iran was not listed as a terrorist state. Mm -hmm. The Shah was in control, not the Ayatollah.
0: The University hasn't raised that as a defense. And because Section sixteen ten G three refers to a, a, a party with an ownership interest, not just a some other intangible interest. And and even to the extent that they do, that doesn't mean that the court should not be able to transfer title to a to whatever party would be ready to to pay the price. And we think it would be Iran, by the way, if if the court would construe this statute as Congress, we think as we read it, um, Congress would finally. Um, I mean. Iran would finally pay attention to a judgment, and they would say we're go- we're about to lose our uh, our our artifacts. What well, what are the terms of I it? Mean, the University of Chicago
2: has this since 1939. Iran has never tried to take it back. What are the terms of the lease? They
0: have. They have. It's not a lease. It was a long-term loan for the for the study and cataloging, publishing, photographing, cleaning um, of these of these artifacts. And University of Chicago does not assert an ownership interest. They, they say that they're they, — in the briefs, they say they're trustees uh, or they're entrusted. They don't call themselves trustees even. They say they were entrusted with this. Every, they use language, but they never say we have a concrete right in these, in these assets. And if they do, the court can, the district court, when it orders the sale, it can make accommodation for that. It can say that whoever buys it, and we would be. We're, we're, my clients would be perfectly happy uh, if the, these university made the University of Chicago is not Chicago. interested
2: in this property for the money. For money, it's interested in having these antiquities
0: I, on display to be researched, to be seen. But it doesn't belong to them. It's not theirs. And whoever it belongs to can decide whether we, they're the best. Who uh, answering university my to question study.
2: that, Well, don't worry about the University of Chicago. The district court
0: can give them some money. No, not money. Not money. The district court, if they have a a right, so the extent that they have a right to retain the, the the artifacts and continue their work with them. The district court can say that the sale uh, should be conducted subject to the rights of the University of Chicago. It doesn't doesn't mean that it's it's all it's not all well, or nothing. How those rights it up?
2: Their rights have been from 1939 on. They have this property.
0: Well. Since 1980, they've had the property because Iran couldn't get it back for a big part of that time, and for a big part of the time before that, every now and then Iran was asking, "When are you going to finish? When are you going to finish studying these things?" And uh, and they were not very forthcoming. When this lawsuit was filed, they moved into, they expedited their study of the assets because they realized that they might lose them. And now, again, the University of Chicago is really an amicus here. They don't. They have no interest in these assets. They. And to the extent that they do, the Court can protect that. It, it can protect that interest in, in a sale.
1: Well, assuming you're right, does that mean if you lose here, you think Iran will be able to repatriate the
0: assets? Absolutely. There's nothing in the way. They did. They did. We lost, um, we lost in the District Court, and there was another collection of Iran- Iran-owned assets. Um, and on the eve of the, the argument in the Court of Appeals, they were shipped back to Iran um, after the court had denied our, our motion to stay but, but uh, they were shipped back to Iran
1: um, and they other things in the United States I, I mean it seems to me so far that the main difference between your interpretation and the other side as a practical matter is that if you're right that private people will be able to take cultural assets from Persia and sell them and ship them back to Iran and if they're right you will have to limit your recovery to commercial objects because that's what the other parts of the statute provide. Well, now, now that's not perhaps going to turn out to be relevant to the decision. I grant you that, but I, 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 it's something I'm I'm like to have in my mind.
0: Okay. The the distinction under the foreign sovereign immunity. Let's put it this way: they want to cabin us into section sixteen ten a seven. Mm-hmm. Which is the commercial use exception for property owned by the state? That provision, as the Seventh Circuit held, requires not just use for a commercial activity, but it has to be used by the foreign state. And a number of courts of appeal have held, as did the Seventh Circuit, and this court did not accept review of this issue, that that it has to be that the use must be by the foreign state itself. Even though that's not in the those words are not in the statute. But a number of courts of appeal have looked at financial assets. Let's take the, you know, proceeds of a, of a commercial transaction between a, a state and private parties. There are proceeds that are held in an account that are intended for the foreign state. And the courts have said that's not commercial use property. Why? Not because it, it's the proceeds of a commercial transaction, but because the, those proceeds be, have not yet been used by the foreign state for commercial activity, they're just sitting in an account passively, waiting to be used, but they haven't been used yet. And the state could say, "We're going to put it in our general that account in
3: like the treasury." Congress has to address.
0: Well, and Congress- those
3: courts may well be wrong. I don't know. What I'm
0: saying is, but- is the practical difference between our construction and the respondent's construction is not antiquities. It's all of these cases dealing with with passive bank accounts. There's another case in California where there was a judgment obtained by the Ministry of Defense of Iran. Against a defense contractor, and the court said the money paid by by the Ministry of Defense that's not commercial use property because it hasn't been used by Iran. There, there's count there are countless cases like this, and this is the body. These are, the, these are the, the, the cases that this provision is, is, or one group of cases that this provision is intended to cover. It's not intended to cover antiquities, and I don't think there's going to be a, a mad rush to grab antiquities. You and
1: yourself, in this case, that's what it is, isn't it?
0: That's all that they've left. That's all this, — this proceeding below began in 2003. The, the terror attack in this case was in 1997. My clients have been waiting 20 years to enforce their judgment against Iran. Iran does not pay judgments — you know, you know, it's not Argentina that can't afford to pay the judgment. They just don't. And they don't, they don't care what the American courts say. And Congress finally said enough is enough. And, and they said there's punitive damages, and we're going to waive res judicata. We're going to waive collateral estoppel. We're going to waive statutes of limitations. You can go back and convert your old judgments into a new 1605A judgment and use, and use that tool under 1610G, under our provision, to enforce it. Congress said enough is enough. We want these judgments enforced. And it's not about antiquities. That's, that's, that's what the respondents are writing about. But they will not tell you what the what the property of reform state applies to. Is, the there, United anything, States doesn't is,
2: is there anything in the legislative record that shows that Congress was intending to do anything other than dispense with the bank check?
0: Absolutely. Yes? Yes. It says that it applies that the provision apply to any property in which the foreign state has a beneficial ownership. That any property in which the foreign state has a beneficial ownership is subject to execution of that judgment. It says the the, um, the the Senate sponsors said that it is intended to remove many of the barriers to execution of a judgment, and according to the respondents, it only addresses one of those barriers. It says that the — right to the, to the property is subject to a simple ownership test. A simple ownership test. When you start piercing veils and layers of veils, that is not a simple ownership test. That might have been intended to be included in, in the — but that's not what was being addressed. And finally, what the, what the statute does say, the legislative history the House report says that although this subjects to execution any property — in which the state is of beneficial interest, it does not extend to diplomatic property. So, once Congress is excluding specifically that narrow class of quintessentially sovereign property, diplomatic property, you know that it's extending, to, it covers everything else. There's no reason if it didn't cover commercial use property, or non non-commer- commercial use property, there's no reason to specifically mention diplomatic property because obviously that's going to be included in non commercial. This applies to everything, everything except diplomatic, military, and certain central bank assets. The idea that that Congress would be concerned with affronting the dignity of a state sponsor of terrorism and would extend protection to their non-commercial assets for that reason, to to avoid an affront to their dignity, is just preposterous.
2: Do you have any other section that that dispenses with uh, sovereign immunity? That doesn't mention, doesn't say anything um, that refers to immunity.
0: Well, I, I mentioned section 1610F1. It says that the property shall be subject to execution. And the TRIA, the Terrorism Risk Insurance Act, which is a note, I don't think I included it as an oversight in, in the statutory appendix, but it's, it's codified as a note to section 1610. And that, that provision — these are the three terrorism provision, execution, immunity provisions of the Foreign Sovereign Immunity Act, and not one of them uses the word immunity. It says that we're abrogating immunity here or limiting immunity. Because, again, it's not abrogating it wholesale. It's maintaining a, a, a skeletal remain of sovereign immunity because it, in recognition of the fact that these states are sovereign.
1: In your brief, you offered several other interpretations of the phrase as provided in this section interpretations that are different from the one you provided this morning. Are you uh, disavowing those now? I think
0: that the best construction is that it refers to the, the judgment entered under 1605A. I think that those are alternative constructions that are viable and certainly more viable than the Seventh Circuits. Again, if you sit down and try to think of cases where, at, where the property of a foreign state Will have applicability applicability under 1610G where it wouldn't where this property wouldn't be subject to execution under 1610A7, right, according to the, the respondents' construction, you won't find it. You will not come up with a case or you're gonna have to work very, very hard. And there's no reason Congress would have included if this were only meant to pierce a veil, Congress would have said, subject to subsection three or paragraph three, the property of an agency or instrumentality of a foreign state against which a judgment has been entered under 1605A is subject to execution, to attachment execution. It did not need to mention the property of the foreign state. Iran and the government both talk about how it had to mention the foreign state. Well, it's true. It had to mention the foreign state because the judgment was entered against the foreign state. But it does not need to single out the property of the foreign state if all this were was a veil-piercing mechanism. It doesn't work. It doesn't — you cannot pierce the veil of a company or a country to reach the property the country owns directly. Now, let me just point out that none of the other provisions of 1610 work with G either. B, which the Seventh Circuit relied on, it said this section refers to subsection — really refers to subsections A and B. Subsection B applies only where there's a judgment entered against the agency or instrumentality — if you have again, if you have a judgment against the agency or some mentality, you don't need a veil-piercing mechanism to reach it because you go after you go after its property directly. C is, is specifically mentions A and B only. That is a, an execution referenced under A and B. It doesn't mention G, and Congress could have amended it to include executions under G. D is for prejudgment attachment where there's an express waiver of immunity. None of these provisions work. I'm going to. I'd like to reserve the rest of my time for a rebuttal, but if you if you sit down and try to, they don't work. It just doesn't. There's no way to read it according to the Seventh Circuit, and and apply it. Thank you, counsel.
4: Mr. Strauss. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Let me first pick up on a piece of the legislative history. That my friend quoted to the court. Uh, Senator Spector, who introduced the precursor of what became 1610G, did say that, as, as, uh, as Mr. Pearl had said, that the provision was designed to eliminate many of the barriers which have prevented U.S. citizens from collecting on court order damages. He then said it does this by changing the legal standard of the Bankek Doctrine. So that was the way in which this exposed more, asked more um, property to uh, execution by uh, terrorism plaintiffs. In fact, uh, the petitioner's position about the construction of 1610 g is wrong for four independently sufficient reasons. One is the language the Court is focused on as provided in this section. This section is section 1610. That is the section of which G is a subsection. So the phrase as provided in this section Means that petitioners have to satisfy the provisions of Section 1610, which means that only property used for commercial activity in the United States can be seized. And petitioners, I think, have just not come up with a plausible alternative account of what, as provided in this section, means. But there's a second reason, and it has to do with the difference between subsection G and the provisions of Subsection 1610 that really do abrogate sovereign immunity. The Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act says in Section 1609 that the property of foreign states in the U.S. shall be immune from attachment except as provided in 1610. Then the subsections of 1610 say in terms, one after another, that certain property shall not be immune. Subsection A says that, as does B, as does D, as does E. Subsection G contains no such language. The relevant part of Subsection G does not refer to immunity at all. And there's a reason for that. The reason is that G is about Bankek, and the Bankek Doctrine is not an immunity doctrine. The Court was very explicit about that in the decision, the Bankek decision itself.
1: Well, you do think — agree with them, don't you, that the property of a foreign state in — in G-1? is, it, is a strong indication, at least, that it is not limited to overturning the Banchek uh, decision?
4: No, I, I don't agree with that, Mr. Chief Justice. I think what is going on there is Congress wanted to make it very clear that Banchek was no longer, to, no longer going to be a barrier in these cases. And so it said property of the State, property of agencies, property of instrumentalities, property of separate juridical entities, interests in separate juridical entities. All of these things are in the same basket, and all of them are subject to attachment and execution. I think that's why you have that, that language in um, in G-1. It's well, not BANCHECK it.
1: wasn't about property of a foreign state. It was about the agency's instrumentalities, et cetera.
4: It, it is — is, it's right that BANCHECK was not about the property of a state itself. Um, but the way the section is written, property of a state — including property that is in a separate juridical entity or is an interest held directly or indirectly in a separate juridical entity, what you see in the legislative history is a lot of concern that state judgment debtors would be arranging their assets in ways that would distance themselves from ownership.
1: Is, is it the case there on that particular point? I, I was trying to work out that. Does ban check ever apply? Could it apply to funds or yeah, funds of the foreign state itself? Would it, is there anything that suggests it applies where the, where the foreign state deposits some money in a bank? And then they argue, we, that isn't our money. That's the bank's money. And we're just the beneficial owner of that money. And Bank Check might have said, yes, that's right. It's not their money.
4: It's an agency. It's an agent's money. I'll say two things to I that, Justice, that Justice Breyer. I think ban- the Bank criteria are not very clear. The Court deliberately left the criteria vague. And I think Congress was concerned about that situation. And I think that's why you see this language in uh, G-1 that really tries to be comprehensive and cover every base. But what I think you don't get out of G one is anything about immunity, because it even applies to separate juridical entities. Who well, would it doesn't have no want
1: to, to, to cover everything in every case. It's titled property in certain actions, and I think the argument on the other side is that the certain actions are, you know, the ones uh, um, in in
4: uh, don't include the ones uh, governing the property of the foreign state. Well, I think the certain actions, Mr. Chief Justice, are actions to execute judgments under 1605a this is a special um, provision to make it easier for terrorism plaintiffs to get assets it doesn't apply to ordinary judgment plaintiffs and i think that's the that's the property it's referring to this is really was intended to make it much easier for plaintiffs who have terrorism-based judgments to get their hands on assets but only those Plaintiffs, so and I think those are the actions, and that's why a judgment entered under sixteen oh five a. But that doesn't mean that the rest of the section does not apply. In fact, it says the rest of the section does apply upon um, uh, as as provided in this in this uh,
3: section. Mr. Strauss, I think you were cut off on three independent reasons. So you, went, you went through one and two. What were three and four?
4: Two was the the repetition of not the repetition of shall not be immune. The third. Um, is this. Uh, The petitioner's position really would nullify a decision Congress made at the very same time it enacted 1610G in 2008. This is, we go through this on page 25 and 26 of our brief. The statute that added subsection G also created 1605, the cause of action that, uh, the remedy that petitioners invoke. That statute then amended the FSIA to say to parties like petitioners who are seeking to execute a 1605A judgment must show that the property they want to seize is used for commercial activity in the United States. That same statute said that. It said that by inserting 1605 A into subsection A, which is a subsection that requires commercial activity. So Congress did that. It created 1605, 1605 Capital A. It said if you have a if you are trying to execute a 1605 Capital A judgment. Um, uh, here is how you do it. Section, You go to section subsection A, subsection A7 says you can execute a 1605A judgment provided you can show that the property is used for commercial activity in the United States. That's what that statute does. Then the next provision, or a few lines later in the statute, really, it's not even the next provision, sets up uh, and enacts uh, subsection G. So as petitioners would, would have it, Congress created this remedy. Um, provided that if you want to execute a judgment based on this remedy, you go to subsection A and you show that the property you're seizing is used for commercial purpose, commercial activity in the United States. And then immediately Congress said, oh, never mind, you don't have to show commercial activity. That's Petitioner's story. That's Petitioner's account of the significance of 16-Den-G. And I think that's just no way to read Congress's actions. That just does not, is not a plausible account of what Congress might have been doing. And there's really a fourth reason as well, and it has to do with how central the commercial activity limit is to the FSIA and to foreign sovereign immunity uh, generally. Um, The principle at stake here is the principle that commercial property may sometimes be subject to seizure, but non-commercial property is not. And that principle has the deepest roots in U.S. law and international law. It's actually anticipated by Chief Justice Marshall's opinion in the Schooner Exchange. It was the foundation of the Tate letter which led to the reorganization of foreign sovereign immunity doctrines. That distinction between commercial and non-commercial property is stated explicitly in the FSIA itself in Section 1602. It's central to the UN Convention on Immunities of States. It was the holding of a recent decision of the International Court of Justice which barred the seizure of, as it happens, a cultural center. The ICJ barred the seizure of a cultural center because the cultural center is non-commercial. and that case, actually involved the victims of Nazi crimes. So this is an extremely deeply rooted principle. Now, that's not to say Congress could not abrogate it. Of course, Congress could. But the Court said just last term in Helmerich, the case involving the Venezuelan seizure of oil rings, that the Court is not going to assume that Congress has made a, quote, in the Court's words, radical departure. From central principles like that one, unless Congress has made its determination very clear. And here, what's really very clear is the opposite that Congress did not intend to override sovereign immunity in Section 1610G. If the Court has no further questions, thank you, counsel. Thank you very much.
5: Mr. Tripp. Uh, Mr. Chief Justice, it may please the Court. Uh, these ancient Persian artifacts are immune from execution under 1609, and nothing in 1610G lifts that immunity. And if I could just make three quick points about why that's right. Uh, the first, is most of the question has already been focused on today, is it just can't be squared with a statutory text. The statute says that the property of these different entities is subject to execution, quote, as provided in this section. Uh, but the way petitioners read it, uh, it would work exactly the same way if it said the exact opposite, if it said that the property was subject to execution regardless of what is provided in this section, uh, and that just can't be right. And, and so second, I think another thing that really drives home that they're misreading this law is that the way they read it, it gives with one hand what it takes away with another. So as my brother was explaining, Congress added G at the same time it added A7. And what A7 says is that these very same people victims of terrorism with judgments under 1605, capital A, it says that they can execute against the property of a foreign state, but only if it's used in commercial activity. But the way they read G, those people can defeat that limitation just by invoking a different subsection of the same statute. They can get commercial, non-commercial property, uh, whatever. And that's just not a sensible way to draft a statute. Don't
3: they explain um, A7 as being present to permit state law claims based on the same actions as the federal action. so uh, That would render a 7.
5: So uh, We don't think that's right. And we also just don't think it really helps them.
3: I know you're saying it, but explain to yeah, me why.
5: Yes, so the, the reason it's not right, we explained this at uh, pages 24 and 25 of our brief. It has to do with the language of 1605 Big A itself. This is on 12A of our gray brief, if you want to see it. And what 1605 Big A says is, quote, The court shall hear a claim under this section if, and then the prerequisites to jurisdiction are satisfied. So we think any time a court gets jurisdiction and enters a judgment, it's a judgment under 1605 Big A, regardless of what cause of action uh, they happen to invoke. I also think this doesn't really move the dial for them much, because in practice, in the mine run application of 1605 Big A, when somebody gets jurisdiction, they're also going to use the cause of action. As petitioners were, dry, were describing, it's very powerful. It's directly on point. Punitive damages, vicarious liability, and so it still be true that in the mine run application of G, they would be reading the law to give with one hand what it takes away with the other. Uh, and then the last thing I just like to mention here is about the United States competing interest in this case. I mean, obviously we have a very strong interest in combating state-sponsored terrorism, but we also have concerns in these cases about. Uh, the reciprocal treatment of our own property abroad. And I think particularly in light of those concerns, which are quite weighty, if Congress was really going to take the step of allowing execution against property of a cultural and historic significance to another country and its people, that would be a big deal and it would not be the kind of thing that you would expect to see buried in a conforming amendment uh, without remark.
3: Well, how about the cases, the other cases he was talking about? The ones with proceeds in the bank from a commercial activity, etc. Um, his reading would take care of those pr- rulings, wouldn't they?
5: I, I, so, I, I think one thing about uh, the way we read the statute, too, I think it does help to some extent with with the breadth of the use in commercial activity. Uh, is that the way we read G? Once you, if you have a judgment against the foreign state, you can pierce the veil down through to the agency or instrumentality. And then you can go after the agency or instrumentality's property under B-3. And B-3 does not require that the the property be used in commercial activity. It's enough that the instrumentality is engaged in commercial activity.
3: So you think those other courts were wrong?
5: Those other — I believe the other decisions that he was talking about were interpreted in A-7, not B-3. Uh, And so — but as we understand it, the statute works together with with all of it. It works uh, 1610. You can pierce the veil and use a, B, the procedures in C would apply, D could apply, F could apply if it weren't waived. And so I think a natural way for Congress to pick up all of those, all of those procedures was to say uh, that the property is subject to execution as provided in this section. Uh, and so what Congress did was to tether the extent of execution under this veil-piercing provision to all the protections that are already baked in elsewhere in 1610, and those protections ensure that you can't execute against the ancient Persian artifacts like these. Uh, so if there's no further questions, we're asking the Court to affirm. Thank you, Counsel. Uh, Mr. Perlin, you have five minutes remaining.
0: The first point I want to make is that the, the, the government and the university claim that our reading would render this uh, — would render subsections A7 and B3 superfluous. That's not the case. The private right of action under under Section 1605, capital A, lowercase c, applies only where the plaintiffs are U.S. nationals, members of the military, or government contractors or employees. The immunity waiver, that's also in 1605A, but subsection A, so 1605A, capital A, lowercase a, applies where the claimant, or the victim is a U.S. national, a member of the military, or a government employer contractor. It applies to a broad — the immunity waiver reaches a broader class of plaintiffs. The remedy provided under 1610 g is limited to those who hold judgments under 1605A, and this judgment that's available under 1605A is is the statutory judgment the provisions of 1610A7 and B3 apply where the judgment relates to a claim for which the foreign state is not immune under 1605A, which is explicitly referring to the immunity exception and it's explicitly referring to the broader class of plaintiffs. So we don't think that there there is some overlap, but that does not render A and B superfluous. Second of all, B — as Iran argues, and they argued below in, in the Bennett case, um, which is the, uh, case sixteen three thirty four, I believe, um, there there was a case where Visa had collected money for uh, Bank melli a bank an Iranian bank, and was holding it because of, because of the sanctions, it could not return that, could not pay that money out. Terrorism victims came and said, we want to we want to enforce a judgment against that money that Visa collected on behalf of Bank melli and Visa filed an, uh, an interpleter action. Iran defended, and they said, you can't, you cannot enforce your judgment under 1610B3 because that applies only where the judgment is entered against the, instrument, the, the agency or instrumentality. And Bank Melly, um there's no judgment here. That's what, I, that's what Iran's argument was. The And right, Iran continues to maintain that, that it won't apply to B3, and I think that that's, I mean, that's, you would have to say that you would have to read out of B3 the limitation that you need a judgment against the agency or instrumentality for it to apply to B3. Again, there's, there's no way to read this through according to their construction, to read it through and apply it. Now, again, just to make clear the point about the — as provided uh, upon a judgment as provided in this section, if you look at the re- other substantive provisions of 1610, they allow — let's start with — let's look at 1610A, the opening paragraph — says that the property of a foreign state used for commercial activity in the United States shall not be immune from attachment or from execution upon a judgment entered by a court of the United States. Right? There's execution, comma, upon a judgment, and then words that modify the judgment. Same thing in in subsection B. It's the exact same structure. Subsection F, it's not the exact same words, but it's the same structure, again, that that, – the property is subject to execution of any judgment relating to a claim for which the state uh, is not immune. Again, the words following judgment are modifying the word judgment, which makes sense under the last antecedent rule. And it also makes sense here because we're, we're talking about a, a particular judgment. Six, section 1610G applies to, to a particular judgment. The, the word execution is separated from that phrase by a comma. The words, upon that judgment, as provided in this section, do not contain a comma. Those words are meant to be read together, and the, as provided in this section, is modifying the word judgment. The U.S. concerns about foreign uh, foreign relations are misplaced. The explicit purpose, one of the explicit purposes um, of the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act was to remove foreign sovereign immunity decisions from the executive branch and, and place it with the courts. And that was for two reasons. One, that, that plaintiffs, American pl- plaintiffs, were being treated unequally based on whatever policy consideration was relevant at the time. And two, the government was subject to foreign pressure. So to, re- to remove this pressure from the government, Congress placed uh, th- this authority in the hands of the courts rather than the government. Thank you, counsel. Yeah. The case is submitted.